Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly sponsored by the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioner, the Auckland Faculty. I'm Louise Kugler, a General Practitioner, and today I welcome John Windsor. Professor John Windsor is a trained general surgeon who has had further fellowship training in hepatobiliary and pancreatic, gastroesophageal and laparoscopic surgery. He works at Auckland City Hospital and the University of Auckland. Privately, he also works at the Mercy Ascot Hospital in Auckland and specialises in pancreatic, biliary, gastric and esophageal surgery. Welcome John. Thank you. So today we're talking about pancreatic cancer. Pancreatic cancer is a much feared disease due to its notoriously late presentation, early metastases and poor survival rates. I wonder John if we could please start by just talking about the incidence and survival rates of pancreatic cancer. Sure. If you look at the league tables for solid cancers, uh, pancreatic cancer at the moment sits at four or five on that list in terms of incidence. Uh, But also important is that the incidence is changing and we expect that pancreatic cancer is going to be the second most common solid cancer within the next decade. In terms of survival, uh, this is a dismal story. The overall survival sits at about 5%, but uh, there's obviously a subgroup of patients who do better than that, and that's the subgroup that we want to look at uh, in terms of intervention. But the vast majority of patients are not going to get intervention, and natural history will take its course. Thinking about risk factors for early detection, what should we as general practitioners be thinking about and looking for in our patient populations? Sure. There there are some subgroups of patients that um, are at higher risk of pancreatic cancer, and in those patients we should be looking more carefully for it. Uh, This is most important as the family that has uh, two or three first-degree relatives who've had pancreatic cancer, and it generally comes on a decade or so earlier than normally, so around 60 or even at 50. Uh, In those patients, we have to be particularly careful about a genetic basis. There's also the subgroup of patients who have chronic pancreatitis, and some reports say that the risk of cancer is up to 40 times that of the general population. And some of the risk factors there, of course, are alcohol and smoking. There's another group of patients that we're seeing increasingly, even in general practice, where with increased use of uh, imaging, we're seeing a lot of cysts being detected. And it's a significant workload for us because we have to see whether which ones are simple cysts and which are pre-malignant cysts. And so we have surveillance programs for those, particularly with mucinous um, producing cysts of the pancreas. There's one last subgroup of patients that we look for uh, with greater care for the possibility of cancer. And that's the patient with acute pancreatitis who has Uh, no known cause, and the idiopathic patients. And so in those patients, if they're 50 years or older, uh, we'll do CT scanning to see whether there's a mass that's responsible for the pancreatitis. Thinking about presentation, John, how do patients usually present uh, when pancreatic cancer is present? The very first symptoms of patients with pancreatic cancer are quite vague. By the time a patient develops painless obstructive jaundice, which is the most common presentation, then it's pretty obvious that you're dealing with with a a malignancy. 
And <coughs> there are several malignancies actually in the area, uh, bile duct, duodenum, ampulla, and pancreatic head cancer. But the pancreatic head cancer is by far and away the most common and indeed the worst of the lot to get. So painless obstructive jaundice, patients who've had that established might come in with puritis, uh, secondary to the bilirubin under the skin. They might also have superficial ichymoses from scratching. And so it's kind of a classical presentation of a patient with um, pancreatic cancer. When the cancer's in the body or tail, uh, jaundice doesn't occur, and therefore the, the uh, presenting symptoms are more vague and nonspecific. Uh, what I think we should be looking for in, in all of these patients is whether they're getting back pain, because a back discomfort or pain is a very sinister feature and usually means that the patient's got cancer that's advanced beyond the confines of the pancreas to involve the peripancreatic nerves. And you can really tell from the beginning in those patients that they're likely to be palliative from the beginning. And I think that's useful to, to pick that particular clinical feature up. When it comes to examining your patient, then there's clearly an, uh, an epigastric mass is something that one might detect. Um, what's commonly mistaken for a mass is actually the distended gallbladder. So that if, the, if the mass descends with inspiration, then you're dealing with Quasier's sign or a distended gallbladder, which is usually not found in the context of stone disease and therefore more likely to be pancreatic cancer. So I think that's useful. Uh, you should examine above the left supraclavicular uh, region for, for Trusier's node because uh, that will also give you an early indication that this patient is not going to have treatment with curative intent. Excellent, John. Some excellent practice points here. Thank you. Just thinking of differentials now. What would the common differentials be? Well, I think for painless obstructive jaundice, um, it's malignancy till proved otherwise. But sometimes, of course, um, a benign stricture of the bile duct secondary to stone disease might present in the same way. Um, autoimmune pancreatitis, which is an IgG4-related disease, can um, also present with a biliary stricture. Um, Benign causes include a pseudocyst of the head of the pancreas related to chronic pancreatitis or even acute pancreatitis. So those are important common differentials. Uh, for the body of pancreas tumor, um, um, <laughs> it's, the, the list is huge because the symptoms are so nonspecific. Um, I should have alerted you to the fact that unexplained weight loss is a common feature of pancreatic cancer. The cancer itself produces cohexin, which is probably the most rapid weight-losing cancer that we know of in, um, in addition to sarcoma. If the patient um, has uh, steatorrhea also, then I think that's important. But these are, are relatively nonspecific and they don't tell us really what's going on. So the answer really is if you've got a high-risk group or you've got concerns about the possibility of pancreatic cancer, then you really do need to go the next step. So we're thinking pancreatic cancer. What investigation should we be ordering, John? Yeah, so you'd expect to find on your blood tests a cholestatic liver dysfunction. I think that's really important to confirm that. You'd also expect to have dilatation of the biliary tree on an ultrasound. Um, it's not usual for the general practitioner to do tumor markers, and indeed they're of limited value, but a CA-199, if it was elevated, might be elevated simply because of an obstructed bile duct. But if it's very elevated in the thousands, then it's usually indicative uh, of, of a malignancy. And in fact, there is a correlation between the degree of elevation and prognosis. So it is of some value. 
Um, in terms of further investigation, um, those are early indications that you're dealing with something concerning. And indeed, the ultrasound might show a mass, but a mass on ultrasound is uh, very often misleading. And I think that it's absolutely imperative that a patient in whom you think pancreatic cancer may exist, then a pancreatic protocol CT scan is required. And that's not just of the abdomen, but the chest and pelvis need to be included. And if you do that, then we've got staging information right from the beginning. To actually make the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, and the common kind of cancer is adenocarcinoma, but there's many other types, and often with better prognosis, then it's very important that we get a tissue sample. And nowadays we do not do percutaneous biopsies, but use ultrasound, endoscopic ultrasound guided transgastric needling of the tumor and that's usually very reliable these days. So with the diagnosis and the stage of the tumor, we're in a position then to take things forward to a multidisciplinary meeting. Um, we now uh, discuss all new, all new cases at this meeting. And the decision that we have to make um, at that meeting is whether this patient is going to be going down a palliative pathway or whether we're going to try and resect. And so we really, divide patients up into resectable and unresectable, but in the middle we also have borderline resectable and locally advanced. And that's very helpful to us because resectable will, will usually go straight to surgery, borderline resectable will go for neoadjuvant chemotherapy, locally advanced in exceptional cases might be considered for neoadjuvant therapy, but the unresectable patient clearly is put onto a palliative pathway from the beginning. And so that's the really the big decision. Um, of course, the CT scan is not the only consideration for us because the morphology of the cancer doesn't tell us about the patient's fitness for surgery or indeed the biological activity of that cancer, whether it's fast or slow growing. So that the decision making is really important at that point. If the patient is resectable, then obviously surgery is going to be the next step. And it's helpful for the patient to have some understanding of what's involved in that. And I think it's important that the patient realizes that this is not a trivial undertaking, that a Whipple's procedure takes really a day's work. Uh, and it takes about two weeks in hospital and about two to three months to recover from. So we obviously don't offer that to patients unless we're pretty convinced that they're gonna get some benefit. Some centers are becoming more aggressive and I think we have to be a little bit careful that we don't hold out false hope to patients and uh, treatment needs to be individualized. And there are some circumstances where we'll resect the portal vein along with the head of the pancreas. Sometimes we'll even go and resect an artery, but that's exceptional. Your patients are gonna read a lot about uh, alternative treatment options. And um, they come with a lot of questions about the use of robotic surgery, laparoscopic surgery. They talk about the cyber knife, which is stereotactic focused radiotherapy. And there's also um, electroporation, which is a palliative means of ablating the tumor. So there's a lot of things out there, um, not a lot established. And I think it is helpful to defer that kind of discussion probably to somebody who's involved in regularly treating patients with pancreatic cancer. Perfect, thank you for that, John. So our role will be getting patients back from their extensive operation or moving forward in the palliative approach. So what should we be thinking about when the patients come back to us? Mm. Well, they may, they'll come back to you often after the first consultation with a surgeon and they'll be floored 
Yes. Uh, we're very conscious, as you are, that the amount of information that's taken in on that first consultation is often quite limited. And that I think the general practitioner has a very important role to go over some of the issues that have been discussed. And, uh, you know, we're always available on the telephone as well to sort of provide extra information to go over things again. So that's a really important sounding board, reassurance, extra information. That kind of role is really important and we acknowledge that. Three quarters of the patients that walk through my door um, leave without uh, being offered an operation. So that 75% of patients are considered palliative from the outset. So again, you know, they may not be facing a big operation, but they're, uh, they're facing the big unknown. And I always emphasize the importance of the general practitioner in the community being a really important reference point for coordinating support services, the Cancer Society, hospice nurses, physiotherapy, um, even you know, helping to coordinate the alteration of the house to allow the patient to remain mobile in their own home for as long as possible. So that's a really important role that I think the family doctor has to play as well. I think when we're thinking about what happens to a patient who's gonna have the progression of their cancer, there are three things which I talk about with the patient, which is important to know. So 20% of patients having already obstructed their bile duct, may go on and obstruct their duodenum. And so vomiting, nausea, vomiting, and of course the weight loss is a significant issue. In the old days, we used to do surgical double bypass. Fortunately, that's gone, and we now rely on endoscopic duodenal stenting. And that's very effective in controlling gastric outlet obstruction. The jaundice, if we're not operating on these patients, uh, will also be stented. Uh, the bile duct will be stented and now we use self-expanding metal stents and that can be put in as well as a duodenal stent so double stenting is the approach we use pain control is an issue often in the patient's mind it's more of a concern than it really is going to be but we need to reassure them that we have um, very effective means of pain control and i involve the hospice nurses and doctors early to get a program that's going to work for them and allow them to function as good as possible for as long as possible. There's not much you can do about weight loss um, other than attempting them with things that uh, they like to eat. Um, steroids is occasionally used and we found that omega-3 fatty acids from a study in Edinburgh has shown to allow patients to maintain their weight for a bit longer. And there's always the psychological uh, fallout from this, um, both in the patient, but also the family. And uh, I like to spend a, a lot of time with the family if possible to try and help them understand the alternatives, the options, and what the future really looks like for them. John, you mentioned omega-3 fatty acids. Can you talk briefly about that? Um, I don't have the data straight in front of me, but Ken Fearon, who's one of the world authorities on cancer cachexia, and unfortunately recently died, um, has written extensively on omega-3 fatty acids. And they did a randomized control trial in patients who were not, were not going to be resected for pancreatic cancer and found that their, their weight was maintained for longer. I don't know that they really worked out what the optimal dose was. But in a situation where you don't have very much to offer a patient, I find it nice to at least have something like that to say, well, look, this is something you can do. I also speak about the fact that they're going to be inundated with well-wishers and people with all kinds of advice. They need to sometimes resist well-meaning relatives and friends. So I try and help them in that. 
Yes, holding on to hope is something that I find a lot in my practice and people mm. coming in looking for alternatives. Yeah, I, I talk about that, that tightrope between maintaining hope, which is really important. And when you do have a plan, you, ha you have some hope. But on honesty is what they really appreciate as well. They really do want to know what the situation is, except for my Chinese patients who don't want to know. So one has to um, show some cultural sensitivity around that as well. So just moving on to prognosis, because that seems appropriate now. <laughs> what, what, are we, yes. what are we thinking there and what are we... Well, um, untreated pancreatic cancer kills 100%. Um, if, if a patient does survive for five years, then the diagnosis probably was wrong. <laughs> um, when we treat patients with um, surgery first, followed by adjuvant chemotherapy, then we would expect, on average, a patient to 25% to 30% of patients to live for five years. So obviously, um, up to 75% of patients are going to die of recurrent disease despite our best efforts. So remember that 25% get resection, but only 25% of that 25% live for five years. So that's why this cancer has a justifiably uh, bad reputation. Um, in some centers, we're getting 35 to 40% five-year survival with some of the newer chemotherapy agents. But to be honest, the answer to this cancer is never going to be sharp steel or a scalpel. The answer is going to be understanding the biology of the disease and delivering biological chemotherapy type agents, which will address key steps you know, in the pathogenesis of this. Um, until we have that, um, we're, we're going to be dealing with the minority of patients, unfortunately, uh, in terms of a curative pathway. So a lot of our work um, stems around people wanting to prevent things like pancreatic cancer. Are there any preventative strategies or advice we should be giving our patients? I think the strategy in pancreatic cancer is early detection. I mean, that's what we need to focus on. And so those groups, chronic pancreatitis, positive family history, uh, cyst surveillance, and the CT scan for idiopathic acute pancreatitis are things that we should be doing to look for early cancer. There is another thing which I think is a red flag for pancreatic cancer, which I think general practitioners need to be more aware of. 20% of patients who present with pancreatic cancer have had the onset of diabetes within the previous two years. So turn that the other way around. If you've got adult onset diabetes, that's a subgroup of patients that we should be thinking about for pancreatic cancer diagnosis. Yeah, unexplained, if they haven't got obese, just develop diabetes, then I think we ought to probably do uh, a CT scan. So I wonder, John, just concluding this podcast, what would your take-home messages be to our listeners today? That pancreatic cancer remains a very challenging disease, still waiting for the key breakthroughs. There are subgroups of patients in whom we can really help. That supportive care is required for all of these patients because of the reputation of this tumor. Uh, I think we can identify subgroups of patients in whom we should be looking more carefully for pancreatic cancer in the hopes of early diagnosis. But this is a complex disease and complex treatment and you know early referral for um, to a specialist is really indicated here. Thank you John, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. If you would like to claim CME points for listening to this podcast, please visit our website goodfellow.org. Thank you for listening.